It was snowing on the day I drove home to check on my dad. He had just gotten out of the hospital again. This time it was gallbladder surgery, or at least I think that's what it was. In the years to come, it would be his heart, his kidneys, his brain. If something can fall apart in a human body, it probably happened to my dad. When I got to the house that evening, the snow had already turned to sleet. Dad was in his usual spot by the TV. He was in a lot of pain, and the wound from his surgery wasn't healing very well. Every hour or so, my mom had to replace the bloody bandage with a fresh one. She smiled when she saw me, but she looked incredibly tired. We talked for a little while about the surgery, about sports, about the snow. Then I decided to break the good news. Jenny and I were going to have a baby. My dad's face lit up for a moment, but then he winced in pain as he grabbed his stomach again. Mom gave me a hug and she started to cry. Then she was laughing and talking a mile a minute the way she always does when she gets excited. She was finally going to be a grandma. That was 12 years ago. When I think about that night, I can still see the happiness on my mom's face, along with the weariness. I can still see my dad's face as well as he tries to smile, but he's in too much pain to really smile. It's a fitting start to a really hard decade of my life. In the years to come, I will become a parent to my parents, moving from one illness to another until both of their lives finally begin to unravel. This is a podcast about the messes we make and the messes we endure as our parents get older. Many of you can relate to this. Sometimes our parents die when we're really young and we feel the loss like a gaping hole that never really heals. Sometimes, if we're lucky, our parents stay healthy until we're old enough to have children of our own. For me at least, it was somewhere in between. I was fortunate to have good parents. They loved me and supported me every step of the way. They came to all my ball games, they listened to me, and they really helped me to grow into the person I am today. But if I'm completely honest, there were times over the past decade when loving my parents felt like a burden. I'm not proud of this, but I have to be honest right now because it's hard to take care of a dying parent, or in my case, two dying parents. On this podcast, I'm going to try to be fair to my parents. They're the only parents I've ever known, and I, I love them. They're imperfect, but so am I. So are all of us. First, let me give you a snapshot of my father. It's the middle of the night on October 11th, 1963. My dad is 15 years old. His dad wakes him up to tell him that his older brother, Rob, has just been killed in a car accident. On that lonely night, my dad sits there in stunned silence, thinking about his brother. Rob was his idol. He wants to be just like Rob when he gets older. Now his brother's dead. The house is silent except for the sound of his mother screaming in the room next door. I remember my father coming to the hallway and then coming into my room and saying that Joe Rob was gone. Well, it was, you know, it was unreal, really. You could believe it. 
A few years ago, I asked my dad to tell me this story. We were driving back from his childhood home in LaGrange, Georgia, and even after all these years, the pain was still there in his voice. And it's almost like um, an immediate void, and a void that continues or hole in your soul or whatever. Somehow my dad and his parents make it through the next couple of weeks, but the whole family moves around in a fog. Dad turns to football as a distraction. His mom eventually pulls herself together because she has a baby daughter, Meredith, to take care of. Two months pass like this. Then my dad goes in for a routine physical and finds out that he has testicular cancer. When they remove the cancer a week later, they discover that it's spread to his lymph nodes. In 1963, this is basically a death sentence, but the doctors have to try something, so they fly my dad up to New York for surgery. His rib cage is cut open, and his organs are lifted out so they can remove the cancerous lymph nodes in his back. Dad makes it through the surgery and fights through the pain for the next two weeks. Then it's time to remove the stitches, which are not really stitches. They're more like coat hangers or rebar placed in his chest to force the ribs back together. A young doctor sits on top of Dad with both knees firmly placed on each side of his chest, and he yanks as hard as he can on the coat hangers, but they won't come out. He wipes the sweat from his face, and then he tries again. The coat hangers finally break through the newly healed skin, and my dad nearly passes out from the pain. After that, my dad goes back to North Carolina and starts radiation every day for the next six weeks. The radiation blasts his entire chest, killing cancer cells and growth plates and pretty much anything else in his path. Along the way, nearly every doctor tells him that the cancer will come back, and he won't survive this. Dad misses a total of six months of school. He loses 60 pounds. But the cancer doesn't come back, and my dad, he keeps on living. He does well in school, gets a full scholarship to college, then a full scholarship to law school four years later. Then he comes back home to Gastonia, North Carolina to practice law. He marries my mom, has me. Then two years later, he has another son, named after his brother Rob. As my brother Rob and I grow up together, we become best friends. And it's good that we become best friends because we're going to go through a lot of hard things together. The cancer doesn't kill my dad, but it leaves some permanent scars. I'll come back to that later. My dad is only part of this story. Now, I need to give you a snapshot of my mom. It's Halloween Day, 2005, and I'm teaching Edgar Allan Poe to a group of high school students. This is a low-level English class with some really, really tough kids. But they quiet down when my mom steps to the front to begin her performance. You see, my mom is an incredible storyteller. On this day, she plays the main character from Poe's classic story, The Telltale Heart. The main character is insane, and my students think that my mom is insane as she gets to the end of the story and lets out a blood-curdling scream. Then she chooses the toughest kid in the class and pretends to suffocate him with a pillow. In the days to come, her performance is the only thing my students want to talk about, and it becomes their favorite memory from our time together. 
the day when Mr. Albright's mom scared them to death on Halloween. My mom loved to tell family stories. She had at least 35 of them, and they were the soundtrack of my childhood. She had an encyclopedic memory about people. That was her gift. She loved people, and she loved to laugh. Mom was always good about seeing the bright side of things. A few years ago, Dad was experiencing stroke-like symptoms, and he lost the ability to talk and walk without a cane. He came to Duke Hospital every month for some experimental treatments, which seemed to help. It also gave my parents a chance to spend a few nights with their grandkids. At night, Mom liked to keep Brett and Kaysen up late at night as she told them some of her favorite family stories. After a while, I started to record them. At this point, Mom was in good health, but I knew that this could change at any moment. I didn't want these stories to die with her. Got your animals? Uh, mm. I need a pillow. Can I have this pillow? It's way past bedtime. Mom is laying on the fold-out bed in our den with my sons lying next to her. Brett is six, Kaysen is four. Their stuffed animals are scattered everywhere. <laughs> I don't want to have to go downstairs and get water. Right. Water. Right. Kaysen, you like it? From Boston. He talks like he's from Boston. I love the way she laughs in these recordings. It makes me happy to hear her voice again but it also makes me a little bit sad. And then the pilot, we came up to this ditch. The pilot went, dive, dive. <laughs> so we dove, including the old lady with the kid, we dove into a ditch and the blimp just went right over top of us with these people and they're screaming bloody murder. When I go back and listen to these recordings again, I find it hard to stay sad for long. So that's my parents. My dad dealt with incredible grief at a young age and he cheated death for decades. My mom embraced every day with a childlike joy that was infectious. My parents loved each other and they took care of each other for a really long time. And then everything started to unravel. In the years to come, my dad was sick for pretty much every major milestone in our family. In the months before my son Brett was born, my dad had a stroke which caused him to lose his balance his sense of taste, as well as the ability to walk. For the first two years of Brett's life, my parents came to Durham every month for those experimental treatments at Duke Hospital. When my second son, Kaysen, was an infant, my dad went into the hospital around Christmas time with heart failure. His doctors concluded that the radiation that killed his cancer at age 15 probably wrecked his heart in the process. But my dad lived on. His voice came back and his balance came back. He made it another year before his heart failed again. This time he needed open heart surgery. As he was about to go in for surgery at Duke Hospital, our family sat around the table for one last meal. Mom, Dad, my wife Jenny and I, our two little kids, my brother Rob and his wife Molly. We were scared about the surgery, but we were hopeful, and our family continued to expand. When they operate on my dad, 
they discovered that the valves of his heart had stopped growing when he was a teenager. The surgeon located a child-sized valve, took out the one that was failing, and somehow, yet again, my dad's heart kept on ticking. During this time, my mom and dad's finances were a wreck. Dad was too sick to practice law anymore. On top of that, he'd made some bad business decisions through the years and he was in debt. My mom ran a frame and art shop and it was the only thing keeping them out of bankruptcy. But she worried a lot because there was never enough money to go around. The medical bills were starting to pile up. My brother and I tried to help, but there wasn't much we could do. Both of us had young kids and we lived three hours away. Our parents would be fine for a while, but then the next crisis would hit and we'd have to make the mad dash down Interstate 85. There was always something hovering in the background. It felt like a constant weight, ready to sink our family at any moment. I felt duty-bound to help my parents. I mean, after all, they'd done so much for me over the years. They'd sacrificed for me, and I needed to make sacrifices for them in return. But love can be costly at times. Duty gets mixed in with love, and before long, I started to resent the weight that was pressing down on my shoulders. I'd feel it at night when I'd wake up with a steady pounding in my head and my jaws locked tight. I began to keep the happiest moments of my life at arm's length, knowing that there was always a chance I would have to drop everything and put out the next crisis. It was hard to be truly present around my wife and kids, or at work, or anywhere really. The weight pressing down on me was constant. Caring for aging parents can feel like caring for a newborn baby. You learn to give up control because most of the time, your life is no longer yours to live. On Christmas morning, 2017, I woke up early and opened presents with Jenny and our boys. Then my brother Rob and I drove to Gastonia because my dad was in the hospital again. He wouldn't stop bleeding and they didn't know what was going on. My mom was exhausted and stressed out because the creditors kept calling and she didn't have enough money. And this time she seemed to be falling apart at the seams. Rob and I went into crisis mode once again trying to manage her finances so that she didn't lose her shop or her house. All the while, Dad kept bleeding and the doctors didn't know what to do. At 10 o'clock that night, I sat in my parents' bedroom, trying to figure out what they could sell to keep from losing their house. The bedroom was a wreck. Dust was everywhere. The trash can was overflowing. Everything in the house seemed to be hanging by a thread. I felt a dull, steady ache in the back of my neck, as if someone was pressing their foot on top of me. That's when a doctor called. He told me that no one knew what to do with my dad. They just put a tube down his throat, which was the only thing keeping him alive. They could keep him in the hospital in Gastonia to see if he got any better, although he probably wouldn't. Or they could airlift him to Duke Hospital, but he could probably die on the way there. What do you recommend? I asked. It's your call, the doctor said. I felt a ringing in the back of my head. I wasn't a doctor. I didn't know what to do. 
The helicopter ride would cost over $100,000. Insurance might cover it, but it might not. Dad could die either way. I need to know in the next 10 minutes, the doctor said. An hour later, my dad was on a helicopter heading to Durham. He didn't die that night, or the next night. A few days later, he woke up and realized that he was 150 miles away from home. Somehow, against all odds, my dad kept on living. The next two months were a blur. It was touch and go for a while in the ICU, then a slow recovery, then he's transported to a rehab facility in the middle of a snowstorm, then back to the ICU, then back to another rehab facility. Mom drove back and forth to be with Dad, all the while trying to keep her business afloat. Rob and I helped them sell some life insurance and what little stock they had so they wouldn't lose their house. And then finally, after 55 days, they wheeled my dad out of the rehab facility and into my mom's car. Rob and I waved goodbye to them as they drove out of Durham. It felt like we were dropping our kids off at college. We were relieved, but we were scared to death of what would happen next. At this point, I had already started to grieve the death of my father at least the death of the man I knew growing up. The psychologist Pauline Boss calls this kind of grief ambiguous loss. Ambiguous loss can feel harder than death because the person is still on this earth, but they aren't the same anymore. Families feel ambiguous loss when a loved one has Alzheimer's or when a spouse goes through a divorce or when a soldier goes missing in a war and their body's never recovered. I already felt this kind of ambiguous loss from my father. I wonder when I would start to feel this way about my mother, too. Dad kept on living, but things eventually went from bad to worse. In 2019, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. She'd already defeated breast cancer once, back when I was in college, so I felt confident that she'd beat it again. My mom was a fighter, and she lived life to the fullest. She wasn't going to let cancer stop her. Mom had a mastectomy to remove one of her breasts, and while the surgery went well, the doctors discovered some unexpected lung issues. When they sent her home, they put her on an oxygen tank full-time. This would become her new reality. The tanks followed her everywhere around, like prison shackles, like a weight that was slowly pulling her underwater. She dragged them everywhere she went, to her chemo treatments, to the frame shop, to the grocery store. My dad walked beside her every step of the way, holding a cane in one hand and my mother's oxygen tank in the other. My father, with all of his own health problems, was now her primary caregiver. They held on to each other, both unsteady, nearly broken. 
and from a distance I watched and waited for the next shoe to drop. This podcast was written and edited by me, Stuart Albright, with grateful assistance from Robert Albright, Molly Albright, and Jenny Albright. Technical support and resources were provided by the Jordan Innovation Lab. This podcast attempts to honor the complicated legacy of my parents, Nancy and Alan Albright. If you have questions or comments, feel free to contact me at stuartalbright at yahoo.com.